Um, I should say before we begin this evening that um, at the end of this sermon, there will be a time for question and answers. So as the sermon is um, going on, if you have any questions that uh, you would like answered, there's a number on the screen that you can text those to, and I'll be happy to try and answer some of those at the end of the sermon. Um, but I want to ask you this evening, what are you counting down to? Is there an event coming up in the near future that you're counting down towards? A momentous occasion, an event of epic proportions. Maybe it's the next Rugby World Cup. Will the All Blacks be able to show themselves to be the greatest rugby team ever? Or maybe if you're like me, you've been counting down to the release of the new Avengers movie, Endgame. What new powers are going to be revealed? How are they going to wrap up 11 years worth of superhero movies? Who's going to defeat Thanos? Every now and again, there are moments in history, occasions that are so important, so significant, that we count down towards them. We await them with eager expectation because we know that during these occasions, during these moments, something great is going to be revealed. Something awesome is going to be put on display. Whether it's rugby or superheroes, we get to see something glorious during these unique occasions. Today we're going to see that the hour of Jesus' unique glorification has arrived, bringing both salvation and judgment. What we'll see is that this event is the most important event in history. There is nothing more significant than this occasion, nothing more glorious. The hour of glory has arrived. <clears throat> and today, we're going to be doing a little bit of talking about this word glory, so it'll be helpful just to have in mind a definition as we move forward. So when I say glory, what I'm meaning is this. Glory is the revealing and the appreciation of the awesomeness of one's characteristics. Let me say that again. Glory is the revealing and the appreciation of the awesomeness of one's characteristics. So for example, like when the All Blacks put 20 points on Australia... They reveal their rugby skills to be awesome, and many of us appreciate that and we cheer. Or take, for example, my, my Avengers analogy. There was that one time in the first Avengers movie where Hulk uh, grabs Loki by the leg and like slams him back and forth 20 times. That was awesome. The revealing of Hulk's strength warranted my giddy laughter and appreciation. It was a glorious moment. Again, glory is the revealing, the being put on display of one's characteristics, coupled together with our appropriate appreciation, praise, and celebration. That, that's what I mean when I talk about glory this evening. And one of the truths that we cherish as Christians is this. God has created everything for His own glory. God has made everything so that he would be seen as glorious. Everything exists to make God look great. You, me, plants, trees, land, and sky, everything. You see, the stars, for example, in the night sky, they're extremely beautiful and unbelievably numerous. And beyond that, every single star has the power to destroy the earth a hundred times over. Yet the Bible tells us that the stars declare the glory of God. They're a proclamation of his handiwork. They exist to make God look great. Now, 
as we hear that, it can be easy to think, doesn't that make God extremely self-centered? He's made everything to make himself look great. But the thing is, when we see his glory, when we see God's glory, when we see God revealing to us who he fully is, we realize that this is the best thing we could possibly ask for. You see, God being the ultimate good, the best thing he can do for his creation is to put himself on full display. The glory of God is the best thing that we could ask for. Letting himself be known or more specifically glorified is the best thing that God can do with himself. Because, and because God is in control of everything, everything will bring God glory in one way or another. However, there is one event, one occasion where God's awesomeness is put on display so brightly, his character is seen so clearly, the fullness of God is seen so brilliantly that next to this one event, this one occasion, this hour, nothing else compares. A truly glorious moment. Today in John's gospel, we're going to see that this moment has arrived. If you've been tracking with us, you would have seen that this hour is something that has been hinted at throughout John's gospel. It was first mentioned in chapter 2 when Jesus says to his mother in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. You see, this hour is something that has been impending from the very beginning. However, it was not yet time for this hour of glorification. It comes up again in chapter 7 <clears throat> when, when Jesus' brothers are egging him on to go up to Jerusalem uh, where the Jews are wanting to kill him. And Jesus says to them in chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, he, he says this, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And again in chapter 8, when Jesus escapes arrest, John tells us in verse 20, But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, as we turn to our text today, what we will see is that the moment of truth has arrived, a moment for ultimate glorification, the hour of glory. So Jesus is prompted to declare that this hour has arrived um, as his disciples ask him about these Greeks who have come to see him. Notice Jesus' words. In verse 23, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, his disciples want to know what should be done about these Greeks that are clamoring to come and see him. And strictly speaking, Jesus doesn't answer their inquiry. Rather, he responds to the situation. As Jesus reaches the end of his public ministry, he's rejected by the Jews and the religious leaders while these Greeks are clamoring to see him. Perceiving the situation, Jesus knows that the time has come for this unique glorification. And from this point on, Jesus' ministry takes a turn. He has a few last words for the world, and then he will withdraw himself, finally only spending time with his disciples before his crucifixion. All the signs are done except for the great one. These will be the last public words of Jesus' ministry before he is glorified, before he is ultimately glorified. Now, if you've been tracking along with us throughout John's Gospel, uh, then you will know already that this glorification, this being made known of God's greatness, of Jesus' greatness, 
is going to come through death. Death and humiliation. You see, for a while now, John has been showing us that Jesus will need to die. In chapter 6, he's the bread who must be eaten by his disciples. In chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And in chapter 11, he's the one who was prophesied will die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but for the people of God scattered abroad. This is the glory of what some have called the upside-down gospel. Remember, we said that glory was the showing off, the revealing of one's awesomeness, the awesomeness of one's characteristics. But here, Jesus is faced with ultimate humiliation, with rejection, scorn, and shame. These things are seemingly opposed to glory. The idea of humiliation and glory, they just don't go together well. Um, For example, me and my brothers, we grew up doing boxing. That was kind of our main sport. And in boxing, you kind of get a unique look at this, at the burden of humiliation. Uh, Thankfully, I never lost any matches, but but I'll tell you now, I knew big, strong dudes who would have a boxing match and unfortunately lose, and every single dude who I saw lose a boxing match would bawl his eyes out afterwards. It wasn't because his face or body was sore. It was this feeling of humiliation. All my friends and family have come to watch me fight. I'm supposed to show off my strength and my power, but I've been beaten. And every single dude I've seen lose a boxing match has that experience of feeling this humiliation. And every single time, without fail, they cry. Big, strong dudes. There's something about humiliation that is so painful. It's even worse than physical pain for a lot of people. How does humiliation and glory go together? This is the question. How is this seemingly humiliating defeat going to be an act of glorification, an act that shows off God's exceeding goodness? Well, this hour of humiliation is also an hour of salvation. Notice how Jesus describes this. He says in verse 24, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. You see, in the same way that the death of the seed provides the germination which leads to life for a far greater crop, so too Jesus' death is necessary. It must happen, and it will be vindicated by a great harvest of life. He will die to provide a harvest of eternal life. His death is necessary. Well, notice how he explains things in verses 31 to 32. He says this, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. You see, initially when we see that phrase, when I am lifted up from the earth, it might be easy to think of that as being his resurrection and his ascension into heaven because it says he's lifted up from the earth. This is his exaltation, his going up into heaven. That's the thing that brings him glory. But then when you read the next verse, it says, he said this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. And then we're stuck going, oh, maybe this lifting up is the lifting up onto the cross. I take it that what's going on is actually both. 
John purposely employs this term of being lifted up from the earth because of its uncertainty. I think what John is doing is he's connecting Jesus' death with Jesus' exaltation. The two go together. Death and exaltation are intimately linked. The lifting up of the cross and the lifting up of the exaltation go together. Now, the pressing question is this. How? How is death a glorification? We said earlier that that glory was the revealing of one's awesomeness, their power, their strength, their might, their brilliance. How was this humiliating death glory? Well, this is what the majority of the Jews and religious leaders had failed to see. Jesus' death was glorious because in Jesus' death, he faces the anger of God. He faces the wrath of God and takes the full brunt of what God's people deserve. Lovingly, he lays down his life as a good shepherd. Now consider the revealing of God's greatness in this. For the first time ever in all of human history, God's love is being put on display in a way that it has never been put on display before. And never again will God's love be seen so clearly. You see, Jesus, the unique son, dies under the wrath of God. The father gives his only son to save sinners. Wrath is born in the place of God's people. Love like this has never been seen before and it will never be seen again. Not to this degree. God is glorified. In this humiliating death, God is glorified. He has revealed himself in a way that makes him seem to us who have eyes to see awesome. God has revealed himself to be merciful at the expense of his own son. And for Jesus, this was no light burden to carry. Look at what Jesus says in verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We see that Jesus is deeply troubled. This is the same word that we saw last week when Jesus was outraged as he confronts the death of Lazarus. Jesus' heart is struck with horror, revulsion, and anxiety at the prospect of facing the wrath of God as a sacrificial lamb. He asks himself, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But immediately, as soon as he asks to be spared from this hour, he reaffirms his resolving commitment to face the cross. And he says, but this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I think there's a helpful takeaway for us here. There's often times when we feel similar to Jesus. Often when we're faced with hardship or difficulty in life, whatever it might be, we're tempted to cry out to God to save us from this hour. But here, rather than running from God's plan, Jesus embraces it so that God might be glorified. And how thankful I am that he did. It's a helpful reminder for us that we need to be um, remembering that we are here, we're here on earth, ultimately for God's glory, not for our own comfort. And Jesus is the great example of this. 
when we're tempted to glorify comfort over God, look to Jesus who gave himself for us and for God's glory. Be thinking of how you can glorify God in your struggles rather than just asking for God to release us from them. So Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. And with a voice thundering from heaven, God reassures, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Throughout Jesus' ministry, God has been revealing so much of his greatness and now he would reveal his greatness again in Jesus' death. Seeming to be weak for a moment, Jesus is in fact doing that which no one else could do. Jesus is defeating the enemy that no one else can defeat. He is defeating sin and death. And Jesus is granting freedom from the slave master that no one else in human history could grant freedom from. He is granting liberty from slavery to the devil and to sin. And Jesus is showing a power and authority that no one else can demonstrate. In the death of Jesus, he is showing himself to be glorious. He is revealing great things about himself. Our Jesus is a powerful Christ. And we say glory to God. But the Jews and the religious leaders, for the most part, did not want this kind of savior. You see, Jesus' death was also an hour of judgment. Notice how they respond to Jesus in verse 34. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Again, we see the religious leaders challenging Jesus. All throughout John's gospel, this has been going on. They've been seeing Jesus. They've been coming to him and looking upon him. But like Jesus tells us in chapter 9, they haven't really seen him. They're like blind people who think they can see All along, they've been hearing Jesus' words. They've been hearing his teachings. But in chapter 10, Jesus rebukes them and says, My sheep hear my voice. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And in chapter 6, we see that people had been coming to Jesus. They'd been crossing the sea to come to where he is. But again, Jesus rebukes them and says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All along, they've had this issue of being unable to see Jesus for who he really is. They're unable to really hear him, unable to really come to him. Unable because they are unwilling. So Jesus refuses to answer the question. Those who have ears to hear know that he's already answered their question sufficiently. Rather, he commends them one final time to believe. Listen to his words in verse 36. While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Even still, they will not believe in him. And with that, Jesus departs and he withdraws himself from them. I think there's more going on there than just a physical withdrawal. He departs and he withdraws himself from them. Now, maybe for you, you've been coming along throughout this John series. You you two have been hearing Jesus' teachings, you've been seeing him to some degree, but still you refuse to trust in him. I think the question is pressing upon us this evening, why? What light is guiding how you live? What for you is the authority? 
How do you intend to escape the judgment of God apart from Jesus? There is no way of escape apart from him. Friends, while there is still time, come to Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps your time for seeing Jesus is coming to an end shortly. Perhaps soon Jesus will hide himself from you too and you will no longer have chances to see him. Friends, while you have the light, believe in the light. The Jews would not believe. Now, for many people, this raises several concerns. You see, this guy Jesus is supposed to be the Jewish Messiah, the one who saves Israel, God's people. But now at the close of his public ministry, Jesus has been roundly rejected by the Jews, rejected by his own people. And one of the concerns that this raises is many people will ask, can he really be the Messiah when he has been so thoroughly rejected by the Jews? Now, the Christian answer to these types of objections is to point out that this rejection of the Jews was not only foreseen by the Scriptures, but was necessitated by it. To say this in other words, God planned for the Jews to be unbelieving. God intended the unbelief of the Jews. And we can see this clearly from the text itself. On the screen, you should be able to see verses 37 to 40. And you'll notice that what we have here is a transition away from Jesus' words and into an explanation from John. What we have here from John is the explanation of unbelief. In other words, what we now get is John's theology of unbelief. Read these words together with me. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Firstly, what I want you to see is that John is indeed saying that God intended the unbelief of the Jews. There are several clear indicators in the text that show us that this is the case. Notice first um, that first sentence. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And then the next words are, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. John tells us the purpose of their unbelief was the fulfillment of scripture. We have unbelief followed by a purpose clause. The purpose of the unbelief was to fulfill scripture, namely to bring about this disbelief in a servant who will suffer for sin. This is coming from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. The next indicator is in verse 39 where John says, this is why they were unable to believe. What is the reason or the purpose for which they were unable to believe? John tells us, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Then even again in verse 40, notice those words, so that. Again, indicating purpose. And the purpose is so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn. This unbelief is intended by God. Now, at this point, it may be necessary to make a few observations. 
Firstly, the Jews are still responsible for their unbelief. They're still responsible for their rejection. Their rejection is a volitional and willful rejection. Yes, God is sovereign, and God does intend for it, but that doesn't remove their responsibility. In John chapter 3, verse 18, we read this. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, their unbelief is a guilty unbelief. You might say, but it says that God was blinding them. God was preventing them from doing what they would have otherwise done had he not been blinding them. Isn't that what the text is saying? And here I think we need to look at how it is that God has blinded and hardened them. I take it that the way that God is blinding and hardening them is by sending them a servant who will suffer. The way God has blinded them is by giving them a Messiah that they don't want. A Messiah opposite to the kind of Messiah that they would like. By doing this, God confirms them in their rebellion. He hardens them in it and he blinds them to it. I'm getting this from that first quote in verse 38. You see, that quote is from that famous passage in Isaiah chapter 53 um, that describes the servant who suffers and dies for sin. Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that made him desirable to us. You see, by sending a Messiah who is opposite to the desires and expectations of the people, God hardens them to his message. Now, there's a second quote in that section of text from Isaiah the prophet also. This The second quote comes from earlier in Isaiah. You see, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet goes into the temple and he has this amazingly glorious vision of the throne room of heaven. So he goes into the temple and then he sees Yahweh. And around Yahweh are these fiery angels flying. With two wings they fly. With two wings they cover their face because they're not worthy to look at God. With two wings they cover their feet because they're not worthy to stand in the presence of God. And perpetually, they just remind each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A glorious vision. And after this vision, God tells Isaiah that his message will be rejected and his ministry will be one of hardening. The God that Isaiah has just seen, this glorious, holy God enthroned in heaven, will be rejected again and again by the people in order to increase their judgment to make the case ever so clear so that on the day when God's judgment comes, God will be seen as righteous. In the same way that Isaiah was given a ministry of hardening, so too Jesus has a similar ministry. Jesus' ministry would also harden many so that judgment might increase. In fact, notice verses 41 and 42. Isaiah said these things, because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Now, whose glory did Isaiah see during that temple vision? You see, if you had asked Isaiah, Isaiah, when you had that vision in the temple, whose glory did you see? Isaiah would tell you, I saw the glory of Yahweh. 
I saw the fiery angels worshiping Yahweh, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But now as we come to John's gospel, John tells us that Isaiah actually saw Jesus' glory. If you ask John, whose glory did Isaiah see? John will say, Isaiah saw his glory, Jesus' glory. You see, that's because Jesus is the God of Isaiah's vision. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the holy God and he has come, he has invaded his creation. And just like in the days of Isaiah, people do not want to know this holy God. In passing, let me just say that this is one of the clearest evidences of the deity of Jesus. Jesus is the God that Isaiah saw during his temple vision. Jesus is Yahweh. The text couldn't be any clearer. He is the one who the angels worship. So what can we say here about John's theology of unbelief? Firstly, we can say that God does indeed decree unbelief. It's a part of his plan. It's not something that catches him by surprise. Rather, he has planned it all along, and he has a purpose for it. In John's gospel, um, the immediate purpose seems to be that Jesus might be rejected by the people and crucified by the Jews. But also we know uh, from the text that people are blinded so that their judgment might increase. We can also say that the blinding and hardening doesn't remove responsibility. Uh, The blindness is a culpable blindness. A blindness embraced and cherished above and beyond the light that has come into the world. Finally, in regards to unbelief, I think it's important to note that John has shown us time and time again that unbelief is the default state for all of humanity. And our only way of escape from unbelief and slavery to sin is for Jesus to free us. Consider just a few examples from John's gospel thus far. Uh, These are a few texts that talk about the inabilities of man, the things that we are not able to do. In chapter 1, right at the beginning, in verses 12 to 13, uh, we read this. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Also consider John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will really be free. You see, unbelief is the natural predisposition for all of us. And our only hope of escape is to be set free by Jesus. So we've seen so far that this hour will uniquely glorify Jesus. Through a humiliating death, Jesus will magnificently show us what God is like in kindness, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. However, this hour is also an hour of judgment. This hour will cause many to become hardened to the message of Jesus. 
Now, as Jesus' public ministry draws to a close, we have some glorious words. John throws us back into the words of Jesus. We, we saw earlier that Jesus withdrew himself from the people, but now we're just thrown back into the words of Jesus. It happens abruptly. We don't know where Jesus is or who he's speaking to or what the context of these words are. But Jesus cries out and says, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Now I take it that it's fitting to see these words as kind of a summary of Jesus' teaching. A summation of everything that Jesus has been teaching so far. We have repeated ideas from Jesus' unique relationship with the Father to Jesus being the light of the world. Much could be said about how this summarizes all of Jesus' teaching, but I want us to spend uh, this last bit of our time focusing on the last glorious words of Jesus' public ministry. They should be on screen. Would you read with me? Jesus says this. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Notice particularly the focus on Jesus' words here. I've highlighted all the times that Jesus' words are emphasized. In verses 49 and 50, Jesus makes the point that everything he has said is that which God has commanded him to speak. And this command is eternal life. You see, friends, it's through the words of Jesus that we know him. And it's through the words of Jesus that we know the Father and have fellowship with them. And ultimately, it's through the words of Jesus that we have eternal life. The words of Jesus are the window through which we see the glory of God. Jesus' words are the word of God. And by nature, the word of God has this unique divine power to bring Jesus and reveal him to the soul of man. The words of God are powerful. The words of Jesus are powerful. Consider again Jesus' words from John 6. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says this, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh does not help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And remember Peter's response when Jesus asks his disciples, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. At this point, I think it's appropriate to consider an important question. Are we taking the word of God seriously? Are we seeing the glory of Jesus through his word? Are we reading it? allowing it to shape our lives daily. This is a good and right response to seeing the glory of Jesus today. Let his word dictate how we live. Let his word shape us and mold us. 
Friends, if you have seen the glory of Jesus today, if this message has caused your heart to stand amazed at the work of the Christ, then believe in the light while it remains. Cry out to God and ask him to save you, and he will do that. You see, friends, the God of the universe has invaded his own creation. And during this unique hour of glorification, Jesus has died. He's put on display his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his power over death and sin. This is a glorious moment. Don't miss this hour. Don't let it pass you by. You see, friends, the right response to seeing this glory is to reorient your life around it. We said at the beginning of this sermon that one of the precious truths for the Christian is this, that God made everything for his own glory. John warns us that there are those who will come along, they'll hear Jesus, they'll have some sort of belief in the things he has to say, but they will be afraid to confess him. And verse 43 tells us that it's, because they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Literally, those words say they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. This kind of faith is not sufficient. Once you truly see Jesus' glory, the appropriate response is to completely reorient your life around it. Live to make Jesus' glory more clearly seen in this world. Read again verses 25 and 26. We read this. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, the Christian is called to give up the glory of self. The glory that comes from other people. And to give up our lives for the sake of Jesus' glory. And these choices aren't just acts of mere self-denial. Christianity isn't about just denying ourselves. Rather, the glory of self must be displaced with the glory of another. The endless shameless focus on self must be replaced with endless shameless focus on Jesus and the glory of God. For Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. And this change of focus ensures both death and glorification. You see, Jesus, when he says these words, um, where I am, my servant will also be, when he says that he is on his way to the cross and death and then to his father, glorification. So too for the Christian, our life is to be marked by death and then to the father for glorification. And when I say death, I don't mean we're all called to go and die as martyrs. What I'm saying is that our life is to be given over to Jesus for him. Our lives are not our own. They don't belong to us. That is the, the death of the Christian life. Our lives are not our own, but we lay them down as a sacrifice to God. And ultimately, um, Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me. You see, friends, the hour of Jesus' unique glorification has arrived. It's come bringing salvation and judgment. So we ought to revel in the glorious salvation so that we might escape judgment. Don't miss this hour. Don't be distracted by some lesser glory. Rather, 
Let your gaze be captured by the glory of God. Let your eyes be fixed on Him. Let your gaze be fixated on Jesus, for His glory is the ultimate worth of our lives. Let God suspend your gaze. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word to us this evening. Uh, God, we pray that you would impress it upon us so that we might be resolved to live for the glory of your son, Jesus. Please help us to see him more clearly. Please help us to see the amazingness of his character. And please help us to respond appropriately with praise, with appreciation, and with celebration. Would you please help us to do that, God? Would you help us to escape judgment so that we might not um, be among those who you withdraw yourself from uh, while we are still unbelieving? Please help us, God. Would you do this for the glory of your Son? In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I believe we're going to go to some questions now. I'm going to grab my Bible, just because I'll probably need that. Oh, no, I'm good. Um, but awesome, there should be some questions coming up on the screen, and we'll look at those together. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, in John verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But I thought Jesus had been given authority to judge from the Father, 527. In what sense does he mean that he does not judge here? It's a good question. So, chapter 12, verse 47. You'll notice um, after Jesus says those words, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that, I've, that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So you see that even here in this text, he says that he hasn't come to judge. But if you reject his words, this will be your judge, the words that I have spoken. So even here you see that Jesus is uh, still coming to bring judgment. I think what he means, I think the sense in which he hasn't come to judge is that this time round, Jesus has come into the world with the primary purpose of bringing salvation for his people. Uh, that's the primary purpose for which Jesus has come this time. He hasn't come to bring ultimate judgment and justice to the world. That will happen. That's next time when he returns, but not this time. However, as Jesus comes with this primary purpose, uh, that secondary purpose is also um, partially accomplished. People will be judged by the but for their rejection of Jesus' words. Awesome. Next question. What happened to the Greeks in verse 20? Did they end up trusting in Jesus? They seem to disappear from the narrative in the rest of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, what you see is uh, throughout John's gospel, we've had this idea that uh, the message and work of Jesus um, goes beyond the scope of what people expect. Uh, in chapter 4, we see that Jesus extends grace to the Samaritan woman at the well. And for Jesus' disciples, this was very surprising because the Samaritans were like these, they weren't real Jews. They were like these weird half-breed Jews who weren't really 
believing all of the scriptures that the Jews were believing. So they were thinking, oh, there's no way, like we're just passing through this town, but Jesus isn't really here for them. And then they're shocked that Jesus is speaking to this woman and Jesus has to tell his disciples, open up your eyes, like lift up your eyes and see that there's a great harvest here. And for them, the idea that the gospel or the message and work of Jesus wasn't just for the Jews, but also included the Samaritans was surprising. And here we see another expansion of that as these uh, Greeks come to see Jesus. Um, What we see is the gospel expanding to a group of people larger than what the disciples might have expected, which is why Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. Not just Jews, not just Jews and Samaritans, but men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be drawn to Jesus. I think that's what's going on there. So these particular Jews, yeah, you're right, we don't, we don't know what happened to them, but we see that they do have some interest in Jesus. They do want to know who he is. And from what we've seen in the way that Jesus has expanded his message, um, I, I guess we could make assumptions that they were God-fearers. They were ones who were wanting to put their faith in Jesus. Okay, next question. If God is sovereign, then he knows who is going to believe in him, become Christian. Can you recommend any books I could read to help me understand this as I seek to evangelize my friends? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is asking, what's the relationship between God's sovereignty and evangelism? Um, there's actually a book called uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, <laughs> which, is, which tackles this question. Um, but yeah, you're right, God is sovereign. And I think um, as we do evangelism, that is our great comfort. Um, your view of God's sovereignty will have a huge impact on how you do evangelism. We've seen today that it's the words of Jesus that have the power to change people. And um, For me, it was seeing... God's sovereignty that had a huge impact on how I do evangelism. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that was, that was very helpful for this. In chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, um, Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now what I see in that verse is that Paul in his evangelism, he knows that God has been pleased to reveal himself through the message of the gospel. And and Paul says he knows that the message of the cross will be a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But the amazing thing is, Paul gives people what he knows will be a stumbling block in foolishness. Why would he do that? Why would Paul not give the Jews the signs that they were looking for? Paul had healed people. He could do signs. Why would he not engage in the philosophical reasoning of the Greeks to try and convince them? He could do that. He was an intelligent man. Rather, he doesn't give them what they want Instead, he gives them what he knows will be a stumbling block in foolishness. The reason is um, because to those who are the called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That makes me go, man, as I, as I seek to evangelize people, 
It is God who changes hearts and minds, not me. Therefore, my job is to preach the message of the cross. I don't need to worry about engaging with people about the complexity of the eye and how this means. Like, those are good arguments, but the thing that changes hearts and minds is the message of the cross, that to the world will be foolishness and a stumbling block. Um, so yeah, great stuff to think through. Be thinking through these questions. How does God's sovereignty relate to my evangelism? The next question says this. In Isaiah 6, the Lord says to Isaiah, um, make the minds of the people dull, blind their eyes. This suggests that Isaiah is to do the blinding. But in John 6, but John 6 suggests that Jesus fulfilled this verse and he blinded people's eyes. How do you reconcile these verses? Um, so it says in John, John 6 suggests that Jesus fulfilled these verses. Um, I'm not sure where in John 6 this person is referring to. Um, if anyone knows the verse in John 6, it might be, mine can call it out. Otherwise, um, might be something to look at. John 12. Um, yeah, I think they mean John 12. So, oh, we'll move on to the next question. Yeah, maybe that person can come chat with me after. But yeah, let's look at this final question. What are some practical things someone could do to start to reorient their life around Jesus? Yeah, good question. Um, so when I talk about reorienting your life around Jesus, what I'm saying is uh, that we should live to make uh, the glory of God more clearly seen. What I'm saying is we should live to make Jesus, um, we should live so that Jesus might be seen as glorious. And some practical ways that we might do this is, um, one, tell people about him so that they might see the awesomeness of his character. Um, a second very important way that I think we often miss is one of the ways that Jesus is made to look great is um, when he's made to look great to us. And that happens through engaging God in his word, um, living for him, putting sin to death. As we do those things to us, God looks great. As I read my Bible throughout the week and see God as gracious and kind and loving, to me, God is more glorified. I'm seeing God more clearly. He's being glorified to me. Um, so one of the ways that you can reorient your life around Jesus is to be meeting God regularly in his word and having Jesus uh, made great to you. Uh, and then beyond that, tell people about Jesus and live your life for him. And as you do that, Jesus will be made great in this world. He will be seen as awesome. Awesome. That concludes our question time. Uh, I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we're going to go into music. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, you have shown us your son. We thank you for what we have seen of him, and we pray that you would help us to see him more and more clearly. Please help us to live for his glory. God, we thank you that you've been kind to us and that you've revealed him to us in a way uh, that we might truly know him. Please help us to orient our lives around him and live for your glory. Would you please do this, Father? Would you help us also to understand your word and think through how 
things like sovereignty and evangelism work together um, so that we might uh, truly honor you in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.